Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to church this morning again. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, we're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 8. I've been really struck as we've just been looking at this series on the book of Psalms, um, just how many people love particularly Psalm 8. It'd be interesting, uh, why don't we just take a moment um, to greet the person beside you, and you might, if you're really brave, talk about what might be one of your favourite psalms and why. So we'll just take a couple of minutes just to say hello, but just to share with one another, what's your favourite psalm and why? Okay. The book of Psalms is precious, isn't it? Um, I know I uh, have a good friend in Sydney who's a lecturer at Christ College and he's a lecturer in theology and he's, he's often spoken about when he goes to visit somebody who's uh, often very, very ill or maybe even uh, on their deathbed, he'll just read through the Psalms. Uh, they provide such comfort uh, as well as such strength particularly in times of turmoil and trial. Today we're going to be looking at one, I guess you might call one of the more positive psalms, um, Psalm 8. Um, it's only short, as I said, a lot of people find um, tremendous encouragement in this. Um, and so I'm going to be reading from verse 1 through to verse 9. And this is the word of the Lord. For the director of music, according to Gitteth, a psalm of David... O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies, to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, it's a great joy and delight to come and worship this morning on this, the Lord's day, when you rose again from the dead. And we pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we will know you better, Open our eyes that we will see wonderful things in your word. Give us minds that understand and hearts that obey. 
Lord, be with me as I speak, that I'll speak in a way that brings you glory and honour and edification and encouragement and blessing to each of us. Lord, we commit this time into your hands and we ask for your grace and we pray it confidently. For we pray it in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, I had a really surreal experience this week uh, of having gone spearfishing uh, for the very first time. A friend of mine was down from the mainland. Uh, he's a really experienced spear fisherman and uh, he, he's been doing it most of his life and so he encouraged me to come with him. He's really confident, knows what he's doing. I have absolutely zero experience with this. But over the course of the week and I think to my better judgment, um, he convinced me to come with him because he'd found um, this really great spot for abalone. Now, I've never done something like this before, uh, and especially not in some place as remote uh, as what he was suggesting we go to. And I've got to be really honest with you, I was quite petrified at the thought of what could happen, especially when the guy at the fishing shop said, yeah, I wouldn't really go there, they got sharks. <laughs> My friend, though, was completely undeterred. And he assured me that everything would be okay. So, again, against my better judgment, we headed off in a boat past Bruni Island to this very, very small spot, um, a little island off the coast of Bruni, and I put my life, I think, literally in his hands. When we reached the spot, I thought, what am I doing? Jumping out of a perfectly good boat <laughs> into the water. And underneath the water, if you've ever been, you know, out off the coast of Tassie, it's just, it's wild up uh, on land and it's even wilder underneath. There's just like a forest of kelp and everything. It just seemed wrong in every way. Uh, just before I jumped into the water, though, I thought to myself, oh, great. I'm thinking of preaching on Psalm 8 this week. And I, I'm either going to go to be with the Lord or this is going to be a really great sermon illustration. <laughs> because I thought to myself how the Lord has placed everything under our feet. How he has given us dominion over everything that he had made. And I was sure hoping that that was going to happen this week. What an amazing situation we find ourselves in in God's creation. For we alone have been created in his image. There are some absolutely remarkable things in God's creation, in the air, on the land, and yes, also in and under the sea. But we alone, out of all that God has made, have been made in his image. That doesn't mean, I think, obviously, where to be silly and take unnecessary risks, but it does tell us something profound about who we are and, as we'll see, who the Lord Jesus Christ is. All of which, can I say, as I reflected on Psalm 8, gave me the strength I needed to literally step out of the boat and uh, take the plunge. I've noticed that Psalm 8 is not only well known, but it's also deeply appreciated by many, many people. And I've been struck by how many people this week, when I've told them that I'm going to be preaching on Psalm 8, go, wow, that's one of my favourite psalms. It begins and ends with the same exultant expression 
of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Straight away, King David tells us that God is the majestic king, not just of Israel, but of every nation. He is the Lord of everyone and everything, and so is rightly to be referred to as his majesty. The Lord alone rules over all, and as such, his name is to be hallowed or quite literally, to be honoured. That's why, you know, taking the name of the Lord in vain is such a serious offence. For the Lord is so holy that even the misuse of his name is a sin. It should always be used with reverence and circumspection. If we ever have to say to ourselves, well, I use it, but I didn't really mean anything by it, that's the point. Whenever we use the, the, the Lord's name, it should be that we mean something by it. It means that we should never use the Lord's name in a flippant or offhanded way. Blasphemy is not something which is really, I think, taken all that seriously in our society, or at least nowhere near as seriously as it should be. But just listen to what the Lord himself says in the Ten Commandments. He says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The Lord, will not miss, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That's a profound warning, isn't it? Could it be that people experience God's discipline, his, even his judgment, simply because of misusing his name? Are you... Uh, may be guilty of sinning against the Lord in this particular way, where you use his name in a way where you don't really mean it. Do you need to confess your sin to him and ask for his forgiveness because of how you've misused his name? The Lord is so holy that his name itself is majestic. And so should be used sparingly and with reverence. In fact, the Jews treated the name of the Lord so reverently that they dropped out the vows. And there's debate to this day on what vows should go in. Should it be Jehovah? Should it be Yahweh? God's name should never be used as a punchline to a joke or even an expression of surprise. But then David goes on to tell us three things about what our majestic God, who is so holy and transcendent and other, has actually done for us. He who alone is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light. When the Apostle Paul says that no one has seen or can see, we sometimes think that 
we're special or significant in and of ourselves. Like in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, we build for ourselves enormous structures or careers or whatever you like, fill in the blank. But we do it all in an attempt to make a name for ourselves so that our names would become majestic and maybe even hallowed or at least remembered. But you know what Scripture says God does in Genesis 11? When mankind gathers together in unity to make a name for himself and builds this tower, reaching to the heavens, not only does God divide mankind so that they have to speak different languages, so that there's division rather than unity in their rebellion, but even before he does that, God is so holy and so transcendent and so majestic that he says, oh, I'll have to come down and see what they're doing. Our accomplishments in comparison to God are so insignificant in the grand scheme of things that the Lord is described as having to lower himself to notice. The God whom we worship, friends, is so majestic that his throne is described in Daniel chapter 7 as being of flaming fire with a, a river of fire flowing out from it. That gives you some idea of or picture of his majesty. He is beyond anything we can imagine, let alone approach. And yet, he does for us three incredible things. This holy and majestic and transcendent God. The first is that he's created us to bring praise to himself. Not only that, but the, the high and exalted and majestic one is particularly glorified through the humble and lowly words of children and of babies. His glory may be higher than the heavens, but it is from the lips of infants that he has ordained praise. There is something truly amazing in how and why the Lord does that. That he is known through the humble confession of uneducated children and nursing infants. That's literally what the, the word is here. And not simply, as you would expect, through the complicated learning of wise men and theologians. In Matthew 21... We learn how the Lord Jesus cleanses the temple. There's two cleansing of the temple at the start of his ministry and also at the end of his ministry. But at the end of his ministry in Matthew 21, he cleanses the temple. And when he does that, he also heals the lame and the blind. But it was specifically the children who were shouting in the temple this, Hosanna! To the son of David, the same one who wrote Psalm 8, a psalm of David. It were the infants, it was the children who were declaring the praises of Israel's promised king. They got it. The wise and the learned, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they didn't. Instead, they were indignant. They were 
they who were learned in sacred things and should have recognized that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised king of David, didn't. Now, isn't that surprising? You'd think that they would have been the first to acknowledge who Jesus was. They knew the scriptures. They were the ones who taught the Bible, but they weren't. And they even say to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? As if I think he thinks that they, they, they should or he should rebuke them. They think that the children are blaspheming. They think that the children are misusing God's majestic name and actually doing the opposite of what it should be. They think that they are doing a disservice to the majestic name of God and should be rebuked. But they're not. They're actually proclaiming the truth about the Lord more clearly than anyone else there. This is why Jesus replies in Matthew 21 to their objection with the words of Psalm 8. He says, yes, have you never read? That's a rebuke, isn't it, to theologians and wise men. Oh, haven't you learnt this? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise? There's no coming back to that. There is something quite wonderful in how the Lord silences his enemies, specifically through the lips of children. For he delights in using the weak things of this world just to despise the strong. It's a bit like, you know, the popular children's story, The Emperor Has No Clothes. All the adults are fawning over the king, and they're telling him how wonderful he looks when he's actually been deceived. Such is, is his obsession with his own vanity and pride that he's been duped into wearing nothing at all. And to make matters worse, everyone else in society is going along with it. But as he marches through the street naked, it's a little child who states the obvious and says, he's got nothing on. The emperor has no clothes. And we see over and over again in this life, a similar kind of thing occur, don't we? Uh, let me step out and take a risk. <laughs> in society to now, there's this almost complete affirmation of transgenderism. And the cultural zeitgeist or the popular opinion of the day is that it should be constantly affirmed until a little child just goes, that's a boy, that's a girl. The wise and the so-called learned arrogantly declare that there is no God and the Lord rebukes them through the witness of little children and infants who state the obvious. They tell the truth more clearly than everyone else who is pressured into supporting the popular but often empty opinion. In the context of Psalm 8, though, the point which David is making here is actually even more specific than all of that. And that is the presence of little babies. Have a think about this. The presence of little babies, those being breastfed by their mothers... 
there is this beautiful witness to the life of God. You see, sickness and death may be all around us, but every time you see a little child, you see that there's hope. And not just hope, it's a witness to the creator God who continues to create life, who sustains everything there is. And so in this really profound way, little babies are a witness to the creator. For he's constantly at work, even as we ourselves see and experience this present life fading away. God continues to be at work. And again, in in Matthew 21, we actually see the same thing. Jesus is healing the blind and the lame. How amazing is that? Jesus does that so regularly that it can just wash over us, can't it? You hear something like that, particularly if you've been at church for a while, and you go, well, of course he does that. That's just just what Jesus does. But just stop and, and reflect on that for a moment. Jesus is healing those who are blind and those who are paralyzed. What he's doing is Truly miraculous and life-giving. Which makes the wise men and the learned, the Pharisees, their opposition to that, all the more abhorrent, doesn't it? Why would you be upset with that? Why wouldn't you join with the children in saying, Hosanna to God in the highest, praise be to to the son of David. That's incredible what Jesus is doing and the children who witness it are saying is that God, by doing that, is silencing the foe and the avenger. The agents of suffering, disability and even death are being overcome and silenced. It started with his, his, with his incarnation and it will be completely perfected when he returns. But we see a glimpse of that here. We get to participate in giving him praise now, which is amazing. Through faith, we get to testify to the power of his resurrection, especially in the face of death. The early Methodists used to boast that one of their great strengths as a movement was that their people died well. Because they died with confidence in the resurrection. What an incredible honour and privilege we've been given to, to ring forth the praises of God. To testify with our lips the majesty of his name and to make his name hallowed. To give God glory. That is one of our chief purposes in life, friends. And it's why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, it should also be when we pray, our first focused. What do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be made great today. The second aspect follows on from this, and it's that God, in his grace, has crowned us, the King of kings and Lord of lords has crowned us 
with glory and honour. Now, there are so many marvellous things that the Lord God Almighty has made. We only have to look around us here in Tasmania and really you can be constantly in awe at the splendour of his creation. People travel from all around Australia, indeed all around the world to witness this. From the beauty of the landscape to the fragrance of the vegetation to the crispness of the clean air, this world has so many wonderful, amazing things in it, doesn't it? But when you stop and really think about it, it's men and women who are the pinnacle of his creation. The majestic king has crowned us with glory and honour. We've been made just a little lower than the angels, which is in itself pretty mind-blowing. There are other sentient beings which the Lord God has made and created, even though we can't see them, they nonetheless still exist. What is tantalising to think about, and David's point is, how is it that we, out of all of creation that God has made, out of everything, how is it that we should have been given such privileges? Because in comparison to the eternal, majestic nature of God and who he is, Really, we're but an insignificant speck. We are dust compared to him who is eternal life. Having been made in the image of God is a massive biblical doctrine with all kinds of far-reaching practical implications. And it's only when you lose that truth, you realise how horrific the alternative is. Ethicists such as Peter Singer from Australia, now living in America, has totally rejected this whole idea that we are made in God's image. And so his point is that it is better to care for a healthy pet than it is for an elderly person with Alzheimer's. Because all of life is just life. There's no difference. In fact, the healthy pet gives people more pleasure and enjoyment than the frail elderly person with Alzheimer's. So resources should actually be transferred from them to the, pet, to the, to the cat or to the dog. Now, friends, that should rightly fill us with horror. In James, where, James chapter 3, we're warned about not cursing another person. Why? Because they've been made in God's likeness. What does it mean, though, to have been made in God's image? Let's stop and unpack that just for a second. Well, it obviously doesn't mean that we look like God, uh, like a child has the resemblance of maybe one or both of their parents. What does it mean to be made in God's image? It's a huge question, and I think it can be summarised in a couple of different ways. Let me summarise it with just three R's. The first is relationship. Where being made in God's image means that we alone are uniquely designed to know him and be known by him. The second is righteousness. 
uh, where we reflect his character. And so we relate to him and to this world in a way that is ethical and reflects uh, his very being. The third is rule. So relationship, righteousness, but thirdly, rule. And I think this is one of the ones that comes through the most clearly and strongly, as we'll just see in a moment. Because we've been designed to reign over creation just as he himself does. The almighty God and king has crowned us in his image to rule over everything that he has made. You see, the third and final point that David makes ties all of these things together, and it's that we have been appointed to rule over God's creation. We, out of all of that that he has made, have been given this unique responsibility to care and to steward everything that he has made because he has put absolutely everything under our feet. From the flocks of the herds to the domesticated animals to the wild beasts of the field to the birds of the air and thankfully the fish of the sea. Everything that he has made is in subjection to us. We've been given dominion over all that God has made and we will be held accountable for it. When I went spearfishing with my friend, he actually wasn't reckless in choosing the spot. He explained to me all the conditions that we were in in which a shark might be as well, as well as I can't believe he told me this, as well as what to do if one came along. <laughs> Who wants a shark to come along? That didn't fill me with much comfort. But because he was so experienced, I decided to trust him. He said, look, Mark, there's always risk. But as we went on to, he went on to sort of further explain, there's risk when you're driving along the road. You just got to understand the conditions. That just as there's lots of cars and trucks and the danger increases, so too if there's lots of fish, there's obviously a, a higher likelihood that you know, sharks are going to come. <laughs> Which actually, can I just say, started to happen as he started collecting abalone. Only small ones. So once again, he said, yeah, there's nothing to worry about. But I'm thinking if there's small ones, there's got to be big ones, right? <laughs> yeah, there's babies, there's adults. Anyway, long before that had happened, though, to, oh, just full transparency here, I was back in the boat. <laughs> oh, popped his head up. The shark's down here. Great, good for you. <laughs> it was something about this whole surreal experience, though, which reaffirmed the truth that even then... We rule over the fish of the sea and not the other way around. You know, all horror movies are predicated on the idea that something in creation is out of control. I've talked to some people this week that said, yeah, they stopped, you know, snorkeling or even water skiing when they saw the movie Jaws. That's it, done. It's all predicated on that idea, isn't it? Creation's out of control. Or, for instance, Planet of the Apes. Monkeys rule over humans. Never going to happen. It's a horror story because it's inverting what God has made. Or, you know, take the movie The Meg. Uh, it's this, that there's this gigantic prehistoric shark in the water which no one can control. Or to use maybe a South African example, there might be this rogue lion that 
you know, is just going to hunt out humans mercilessly and no one can capture. Not going to happen. You get a rogue lion, but eventually it's going to be shot and killed. The reality is it's actually not the case. The reality is God has put us in authority over them and we have to be good stewards. We have to make sure that there's actually lions that remain and we don't wipe them out. We have to make sure that fishing is sustainable and that there's actually sharks in the water. So our responsibility as stewards is to make sure that creation is sustained and, and is sustainable. In fact, I was talking to John Clayweight a number of months ago and he was saying whales used to be so popular in the Derwent that the governor used to complain about the whale songs keeping him awake at night from government house. Someone else was telling me up at Wineglass Bay, I thought it was Wineglass Bay was just because of the shape of the bay. It looked like a beautiful wine glass. That was only half of the reason. The other half is because they killed so many whales up there, the, the water there was constantly red. We have to care for God's creation and make sure that everything remains ultimately sustainable. That's our God-given responsibility. That's why we have bag limits on things like fish. Because as we've tragically seen at times, we can abuse that God-given authority which he's given us. I was fishing with my friend and bag limit in um, Tasmania for abalone. In, in New South Wales, it's two. Down here, it's ten. That's huge. I thought, wow, abalone's $100 a kilo. I thought, I'm going to get a licence. I'm taking my life into my own hands. I'm going to get a licence. I'll go with you. I got two. The boat's allowed to, you know, carry 20 then if there's two of us. It was really interesting. My friend was there and he was saying, and I was saying, oh, look, we've got 22. What are we going to do? He goes, we've got to throw two back. I've never, never seen anybody, you know, check this. And I thought to myself, just for a split second, who would know? And as if he'd sort of, you know, was reading my thoughts, he said, Mark, the God of all the universe, the judge of all, sees everything. Okay, we'll throw them back. $200 goes back into the water. <laughs> it's human beings, though. That's the point. It's human beings that have been given this delegated responsibility before God. I know it sounds really obvious, but there are many in the world today who need to be reminded of this truth. But with all that said, Psalm 8 points us as, as wonderful as it is, and we could stop there, but it would be wrong because Psalm 8 actually points us to an even more glorious reality than even who we all are. Because while all of these truths are wonderful, we need to be, and need to be reaffirmed, Psalm 8 actually points us wonderfully to Jesus. We saw that really clearly in our Bible reading from Hebrews chapter 2, didn't we? Can, open your Bibles up with me again, and let's have a look at what God says to us in Hebrews chapter 2. Because Jesus is the true Son of Man, the one who ruled over God's creation perfectly. The writer of Hebrews builds on this and he teaches that Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 8 more fully than any of us ever could. And here's the really amazing thing. 
Jesus existed even before he came to earth at Nazareth. Get your mind around that. Jesus existed even before he was born. Even before Christmas. He was the Son of God from all eternity. And by coming to earth as a man, the eternal majestic God lowered himself to just a little bit lower than the angels that he had made. And he not only lived a perfect life, not once breaking God's law, but he died on the cross for our sin. And because of this incredible sacrificial act, he is now crowned with glory and honour. You see, do you see what Psalm 8 is really pointing at here? Psalm 8 talks about the children and infants silencing the foe of, and the avenger, silencing chaos and disease and death. And the, in, in, the, in the amazing mystery of God's wisdom, God himself becomes a little baby. And God himself suffers death. And because he goes through death onto the other side, he breaks the power of death once and for all. That's mind-blowing. We read in Revelation 5, the living creatures and the elders who surround the throne are right now at church. Right now in the heavenly realms, they're singing this song. You are worthy to take the scroll. They're saying this to Jesus. And to open its seals. That is to unlock the mystery of God's plan for the universe, for the world. And do you know why he's worthy? He says, because you were slain. Because you died. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. All of heaven is praising Jesus right now because Jesus lowered himself, died for us, rose again and redeemed those who are his. He says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And did you notice this? They will reign on the earth. And then a little bit later, we're told this. They sing, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen. That is what Jesus has done as the true son of man. We have a saviour, friends, who is not just fully God, but also fully man. In fact, more man than any woman or man ever was. More fully alive, more fully human than anyone who's ever existed. He's perfectly fulfilled what Psalm 8 talks about. You see, as, as amazing as all of this is, even the writer of Hebrews says, and yet, and yet we don't see this with our eyes just yet, do we? If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you see it by faith, but not by sight. There is still so much more that is yet to be revealed. 
By faith, we can still see who Jesus is and what he's achieved. In Daniel chapter 7, if you know your Bibles well, just you might want to look this up later. In Daniel chapter 7, it describes this incredible scene of someone called a son of man. Uh, that actually becomes something of a messianic title, which, re, which Jesus actually refers to of himself in the gospel. Sometimes you think son of God refers to his divinity and son of man refers to his humanity. Uh, not necessarily so. It actually morphs. Son of man is man, but it becomes this messianic title and it becomes more than that. The reason why it's so significant is because in Daniel 7, this son of man figure approaches the ancient of days. He approaches God and this son of man figure is given all authority, power and, and glory. He rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. So much so that we're told that all peoples, nations and men of every language worship him. They worship him, this son of man, because he's God. Because he's the king. Because he rules, he reigns. And that his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Babylonians, destroyed. The Medes and the Persians, destroyed. The Greeks, as great as it was, as Alexander ruled most of the world, destroyed. The Roman Empire, destroyed. The kingdom of Jesus, though, reigns. It reigns throughout the whole world. He's reigning over the divine, as the divine son of man over all the kingdoms of the earth. He doesn't just rule over the fish and the birds and the animals, but he, he reigns over people of every tribe and language and nation and tongue. How majestic and holy then is the name of Jesus why would you ever misuse that name? Do you know who you're talking about? The name before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. As we saw last week then, no matter what you're going through right now, is there anything to truly be afraid of? If you're with Jesus, you're in the majority. No opponent, no trial, no suffering. Because Jesus, the King of Kings, is with you. You don't even need to be afraid of death. Because he's defeated that. He made himself a little baby that lived and died and rose again so that you don't have to fear it. Trust in him then, friends. Seek out opportunities to give his name praise. Actually, make his name the name on your lips that bring him praise. Yes, it will bring you opposition, sure. But you've been given the inestimable privilege to give the, the true and living God praise. So praise him. Exalt the name of Jesus. That's what we've been created and redeemed for. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you and praise you for who you are, the true and living God who lives and reigns over all the earth, over all the creatures, over all the nations. 
Lord, we thank you for speaking to us through your word by your spirit this morning. And we pray that as we go out from here today, Lord, we will live for the praise of your name. That your name will be on our lips, not in a flippant or irreverent or casual way, but in a very deliberate, even passionate way that seeks to exalt your name. Lord, we pray that you will be with each and every one of us. You know our struggles, you know our fears. Help us to see that Jesus is greater. He's greater than anyone or anything. Lord, conquer our fears by giving us a clearer vision and trust in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?